0: Talk me through that process. What was it like for you?
1: Well, uh, actually, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I never took notes, but I just sat and thought about it, went back, you know, it's a long life. I'm 89 now, going on 90. Uh, And, um, you know, things come back to you. As a matter of fact, I think, uh, I hope some people are that way, that uh, memory comes back faster uh, when you are older and have some time to think than when you're busy and are younger.
0: What sorts of just life lessons do you reflect on uh, when you're writing an autobiography? I imagine some of these feelings uh, come more into into focus.
1: Yes, well, of course, uh, I started uh, with... I did look up the history of the city where I was born, uh, which is Mannheim, Germany, Uh, And, of course, I had other relationships later on with that city. Uh, The city was uh, outstanding in that uh, it uh, was one of the few cities in Europe that did not have a ghetto. And so uh, when Jews returned after being uh, ejected from the city a long time ago, they came back in the 18th century and from then on were rather free And I reflected on that, and my father um, came to Mannheim in 1921. My mother was born there in 1900, and so the family uh, had a long relationship with the city. Uh, After that, uh, when we left in 1939, uh, I came back as an American soldier, and (laughs) <laughs> which was very strange that the uh, point where the our uh, division met was exactly a half a mile from the house where I was born. And this was rather a shock. But from then on, uh, the whole relationship with myself and the city, uh, has blossomed. I've written four works for the city, uh, two for the orchestra there, one for the largest church uh, in town, and the other for the anniversary, 400th anniversary of the city, which was commissioned by the mayor uh, for the wind orchestra of the city. And so that uh, started a whole series Of uh, adventures uh, in my mind. And so instead of uh, writing a biography day by day or year by year, uh, I reflected on the many stories that happened during certain times in my life. Uh, First in childhood, uh, which was uh, very uh, different because I uh, lived through the early years of the Nazi era, Uh, just before the war we came to America in early 1939. And then uh, my early school years, the later years in college and graduate school, then in the army and so on. And when you think of it that way, stories come back. And that's why I call it um, stories about my life uh, from a composer's life rather than an autobiography.
0: What a, a fascinating relationship with Mannheim. That's completely unique. Going back to that that, that pre-war time, the, the the time leading up to that war. Could you share just a few pivotal memories from that early childhood period in your life?
1: Well, of course, uh, we lived a segregated life. My father was the chief cantor of the Central Synagogue, so it our life revolved around religious. Uh, celebrations, etc., uh, both at home and in the synagogue, since my father had this uh, position. Uh, however, uh, we were segregated because Jews could no longer go to restaurants, the movie, or any other public place. Uh, so everything was uh, kind of limited, as far as my childhood is concerned. I also remember, of course, starting violin lessons at seven, and that uh, occupied a great deal of my time because I loved to practice. And as a matter of fact, the teacher I had, um, who played a great role in my first years of playing the violin, uh, that teacher came every day because he lost his job, because he was also Jewish, though he was converted early, but that didn't make any difference. He came every day to uh, practice with me or give me a lesson because my mother fed him. He was so poor. Uh, Those kind of uh, memories uh, are embedded in one's mind. Also, uh, certain things, I was the first class that was uh, segregated from all other children, and it was the start of a purely Jewish school uh, away from the regular public school, uh, that made a big difference because we had no association with other children. Uh, so those things one remembers uh, through one's life.
0: I'm curious to know, Sam, when you come to the United States and you're arriving at a period of uh, during Jim Crow. And then, of course, later on, we have the civil rights movement. How, how did that uh, your early experiences um, color your, your assessment of, of the segregation going on in your new adopted country with regard to African-Americans?
1: I was really not very uh, conscious of that since we lived in Massachusetts. And uh, we grew up Uh, Actually, uh, we had a next-door neighbor who was uh, a black family, and we were very close to them. We went to school together and so on and so forth. So I was not, uh, in my early days, aware of segregation. I became aware of it very much so uh, after uh, I was in the Army, where we did have segregation until, of course, uh, later on in the Truman administration, and certainly Eisenhower, uh, the army was integrated. But then, after the army, I went down south, and I was shocked. I, I can tell you an incident. Um, I, uh, I was stationed in Texas uh, as a soldier, and uh, my first trip uh, when I had a pass was to go to Dallas. And I always liked to sit uh, at the back of the bus, so I took a bus to North Dallas, and I was the only person in the bus and I sat in the last row and The bus driver, after starting out, went stopped and uh, parked the car the the bus and I asked him, "Listen, uh, aren't we going to North Dallas?" He said, "Not while you're sitting there and I was made aware that uh, whites sit at a different place from blacks and that shocked me uh, and i i was very much uh, involved in the civil rights struggle uh, in dallas itself uh because it was very segregated and uh we tried in my position, to integrate as much as possible.
0: You write about the, the educational component in your military career uh, as being, uh, you know, different, but also uh, nonetheless very real. Could you speak to another uh, kind of awakening or awareness that came about through your, your military time?
1: Well, in my military time, uh, at first, I was very much afraid because, you know, uh, the military or guns were the farthest thing from my uh, psyche uh, since uh, all I did was do music and philosophy and reading history and so on and so forth. And that I I was never aware of the army culture until I was drafted. Uh, Once I was in, I tried to uh, do the best I can, and I was very lucky, because besides being in the artillery uh, and the tank corps, uh, I was also a chaplain's assistant, and I was able to do music. uh, And when we got overseas, I was given the opportunity to go into the town where we were stationed and build the bridge between the American army and the population, because I founded a civic chorus which uh, put together for the first time since the Thirty-Year War uh, partisan and Catholic choirs, uh, and we actually sang together, which to me was a, a, a great forward step.
0: You, uh, since the, the the civic chorus Uh, years, um, early beginnings in the terms of not only leading a group, but obviously teaching along those lines. You've taught since the 1950s, and I'm I'm wondering what sorts of changes in in the student population, attitudes or, or commitment, habits, that sort of thing, stand out in your mind over that span?
1: Well, I've been very lucky. I've had the very best jobs in our country, starting at the University of North Texas, then going to Eastman uh, in Rochester and then uh, teaching there for 30 years. And then after retiring from there 20 years uh, at the Juilliard School, I've had the best students uh, in the world, perhaps, uh, from all over the world. And I have to tell you that this whole business about the death of classical music is ridiculous because we have in our country and around the world – Uh, the greatest talents, both performance and uh, composition-wise, that have ever existed, I'm sure, because uh, today nothing is difficult for students anymore, and uh, the composers are really first-rate, the young composers I'm talking about, and I've had only the very, very best experiences with these wonderful students uh, who have uh, come a long way Uh, including, of course, uh, Dan Locklear uh, at Wake Forest and many others throughout the country uh, who have tremendous careers in both commercial as well as uh, educational places.
0: Well, you address the issue of of education from the the teacher's standpoint in your your book, uh, Building Bridges with Music, but also uh, from the student perspective. You yourself uh, studied with uh, some um, amazing figures in in American, uh, just in the history of Western classical music, but in general at Harvard, I'm talking about uh, people like Aaron Copeland, Paul Hindemith, and, and Walter Piston, among many others. Um, Correct. A lot of folks have heard stories, uh, especially uh, you know, classical musicians, about these pivotal composers and, and educators, but not not from someone like yourself who actually knew them and, and knew them well. I, I wanted to know, uh, just selfishly myself, what, what's the the first story that that may jump to mind uh, from your association, say, with with Aaron Copland?
1: Well, I mean, the first story is a rather difficult one, which I do tell in in the book. And that is that he at first refused to have me as a student because he felt I was so uh, tradition-bound and influenced by Hindemith, with whom I was studying before I went to Copland, that um, he said, look, uh, you uh, have such a good technique, uh, I'm not interested in that kind of music. And it was very difficult to have a breakthrough with him because he was very critical which, by the way, I now appreciate more than ever, uh, because uh, he wanted me uh, to change and look into myself more rather than into uh, having a great technique uh, in counterpoint or harmony and so on. And he helped me greatly by first refusing to have me as a student and then being very critical. And it took 10 years Uh, after I studied with him, that he gave me a letter of recommendation and finally said, Sam, you're really a composer now. After hearing your first and second symphony and your first opera, I really think that you're going to make it. Well, that meant really something to me because at first uh, he had his doubts. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that is a great story. I love that. I, you know, uh, hearing. Um, I think it was Leonard Bernstein talking about his early associations with with Aaron Copland and how Copland would look at his score and tear it to shreds and look at maybe one measure of music and say, "Here, Lenny, that's you. Write the rest of it like that measure." And I just found that very interesting. Well, that's,
1: that's the way he taught, and he. Uh, it was the same thing, uh, you know, and. Uh, Bernstein, uh, when I was a student uh, at Tanglewood, of course, uh, I had an association with Bernstein, and and he uh, was so uh, laudable uh, about uh, the uh, instruction that he had with Copeland, and I have always felt the same way.
0: I want to talk a little bit about Paul Hindemith. I've heard so many stories about his facility in walking into a classroom and just writing a sonata on a board quickly, as an example. Um, but And that one-on-one that you get studying with someone over months and years. Tell me, tell me a story about that association, and what, what, what jumps to mind when you think about that man and, and his contribution?
1: Well, actually, I only studied with him one year, uh, the year he was at Harvard. Uh, writing, uh, giving the Norton Lectures, which came out in the book uh, Composer's World, um, which is a wonderful series of lectures. Uh, he was very demanding. He felt that you should have a complete piece for every lesson. And you took two lessons a week, so you had to have uh, two pieces. Well, he didn't care how long they were, but he wanted a complete piece. That was a very demanding kind of uh Assignment every week, he could do it, of course, very easily. As I mentioned in the book, he wrote one of his sonatas on the board, which I copied, and he published it without changing a note, uh, because he was so sure in his technique and uh, in in the style that he was writing in, which was very much his own and very individualistic. Um, He, by the way, he never spoke German to me, even though I could speak German to him. He spoke only English and uh, had a wonderful vocabulary, even though he had an accent that sounded like his hometown Hanau. He spoke German with that accent and English with that accent, which was a very funny thing. But um, he was very demanding and felt that uh, one should not let up at all. Uh, work every day, uh, just like going to the office.
0: Of, of all those teachers, we could throw Walter Piston into the group as well, and Thompson. Who, who, who impacted you most, would you say, in terms of your own approach to composition, and, and, and what was that, that contribution?
1: Well, I think I had something from everyone. Uh, I uh, I didn't get much from Randall Thompson. He was not the best teacher. However, I loved his choral music, and uh, my early choral music is is a little like his. Uh, Walter Piston uh, was great. Uh, his music uh, and of course Copland's were very influential in my early works after I got out of the army. However, technique wise. Uh, I have to say that Hindemith uh, was of great influence uh, because he taught a kind of uh, craftsmanship which you can use the rest of your life.
0: One of the overarching, uh, I, I guess, personalities uh, through, through this entire group, uh, practically, with the exception of Hindemith, of course, uh, uh, perhaps no other musician did more, I guess, to foster great American uh, composition than, uh, was, than Serge Kuzovitsky. uh Oh well. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the, the, the providing the, the the venue and then supporting uh, contemporary music and and actually rotating in new works into the Boston Symphony's repertoire for so many years.
1: Well, I- I'd like to tell a story about that because that that makes it very clear. Um, I am old enough to have they, my father took me to the first performance of Bella Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra. Uh, which was uh, Kuzevitsky and the Boston Symphony. And uh, on a Friday afternoon, my father, uh, we drove to, to Boston and went to the concert. And of course, I was very excited about it and went to see uh, and get an autograph of Bartok's, who was at that time quite ill. And I went backstage and Bartok was sitting there uh, all into himself because he was very ill. Uh, Kuzovitsky came back from the stage quite energized and said there were about 25 reporters there. And he pointed to Bartok and said, boys, there sits the greatest composer in the world. And Bartok looked up and quietly said, Sergei. Last week, you said it was Prokofiev. Well, last week, he did the first performance in Boston of Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony, and therefore Prokofiev was the greatest composer. Every week, he did a new work, which was so exciting, and I'm afraid is not the custom today anymore.